Well, look, have you ever had uh, one of those sort of crucial moments in your life where you desperately needed something? Like maybe it was an answer to a big question uh, or to a problem you're facing, some kind of provision maybe for a tremendous need, yet you didn't have any idea uh, where that answer or where that provision might come from or if it would come at all, right? Have you ever had your back against the wall, maybe at your job or in a relationship or in some situation that seemed impossible to overcome, short of a miracle. And then at the 11th hour, just as all hope for a solution for that provision or that resolution or whatever it was seemed all but lost against all odds, just what you needed came through by way of the most unlikely and unpredictable means imaginable. You know what I'm talking about? When we planted this church, I'll never forget, the first 18 months were tough. We had no resources, we had no money, we had no people <laughs> for a long time. When the church needed a microwave, we took our microwave from home and we brought it down here and put it in the church. When the church needed furniture, we took our furniture out of our house and we brought it down here, couches and chairs. You do what you have to do. You do everything that you can do to make it work, but I'm telling you, there were so many weeks where I would say to my wife on Thursday, if something doesn't turn around by Monday, I have to go get a job, which I've worked all my life. It's not that I was opposed to working, but then I wouldn't be able to pour myself into this, which is what I feel called to do. We're out of money, out of resources, out of options. I can't tell you how many times Monday morning we opened the mailbox on those days and there would be a check from a church halfway around the world for $5,000. It happened to us over and over and over again. An eye doctor in Alaska, sent us a check for $3,500. I mean, that sort of thing kept us going right down to the wire time and time again. In fact, I bet with this room full of people, we could tell some stories like that because we tend to carry those kinds of experiences with us. In fact, they often become defining moments in our lives that shape us for the better or, or for the worse. Listen, because even sometimes when the answers or provision comes. Sometimes it doesn't come the way you expect it to or want it to, and the stress and trauma of those kinds of experiences can unravel us emotionally to wreck our confidence to the point in uh, we don't have the faith we need for the future. Or those experiences, of course, can mold our character for the better, temper our disposition toward adversity, and most importantly, those moments can actually build our faith if we're willing to accept, and this is a big if, because this is where so many of us get hung up. If we're willing to accept that ultimately, we are not the ones who are in control of the outcome of those situations to begin with, right? I mean, it's easy to feel like we're in control of everything in our lives when things are going well, but what about when it all goes sideways and then we panic and we plead with God to do something? to take control of the situation. You know, like, hey God, I'm, I'm out of options. I need you to take over. How many times do we pray those kind of prayers? I need you to take control of the situation as if he were not already in control. But he is in control all along. Whether we accept it or not, or recognize it or not, or acknowledge it or not, God is sovereign. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Well, if that's true, it makes you wonder, if God is sovereign, if he has all authority and all power and all control, then why even worry about faith, right? 
If God is in control of everything, then why does our faith matter? Why does our faith need to be built up or strengthened at all? What difference does it make? Well, first of all, it's important we understand that the answer to that question is something that changes us, not God. God is not made more or less according to our measure of faith. He's not dependent upon or commanded by our faith. Okay, God is not made less able by our lack of faith or more able by an abundance of it. No, God is God. He is immutable. That is to say, he is unchangeable. He is steadfast, all-powerful, and unequaled. Our faith or a lack of it does not change him, and it doesn't wrestle one ounce of sovereignty away from him. What we do or do not do relative to the measure of faith that we have in any given situation does not alter God in the equation one iota because he is unalterable. He is the same, in fact, yesterday, today, and forever. Now listen, how we choose to exercise, to use our faith, does absolutely, however, have a prodigious effect, a monumental effect on us First of all, and secondly, although God is not changed by our faith, he absolutely responds to our faith. In Luke 8, 48, after a woman who had been sick for 12 years spent all of her money on doctors who could not heal her, she pressed her way through the crowds of people following Jesus just so she could touch the fringe of his garment, believing that he could heal her, and she was healed, right? And as Jesus confronts her, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Luke 17, 19, after healing a Samaritan man with leprosy, among others, Jesus said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. In James 5, 14 and 15, James says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. Look, clearly God responds to our faith. In fact, Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So not only are we changed by our faith in God, but he also responds to our faith in him, which is why there's tremendous culpability, uh, responsibility for us in what we do with the faith that he's given us, especially in times of want, and distress because as I'm sure you already know there will be times throughout your life for some of you there already have been where there are situations and circumstances that are presented to you that require you to make some choices that necessitate great faith in God why because those same choices also demand that you act at substantial risk to yourself okay the truth is Listen, you will never accomplish or experience all that God created you to accomplish and experience in this life by playing it safe. You won't. You'll never accomplish everything that he's created you to accomplish and experience in this life by playing it safe. In fact, at times, the risk may be so high that failure is guaranteed if God doesn't also sovereignly and sometimes supernaturally move on your behalf against all odds. In Matthew 14, as the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat, an overwhelming storm comes up, and simultaneously the disciples see Jesus, but they don't know it's him. When he's walking on the water, and understandably, as any of us would, they start freaking out. Right? You know the story. So Jesus reassures them that it's him. And Peter answers him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. 
So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now look, when Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water, you understand it wasn't the power of positive thinking that kept Peter on the surface of the sea. Sorry. It wasn't positive thoughts and good vibes that kept Peter from sinking. No, it was God sovereignly and supernaturally acting on Peter's behalf against all odds that enabled him to defy the laws of nature. But notice how Peter's faith came into play, how his faith still mattered in that situation when Peter's faith in God's ability to overcome all odds was overtaken by his own fear and doubt. He begins to sink. And what does Jesus say to him? Oh, you of little faith. Now listen, if Peter was not responsible at all, if Peter had zero culpability for how he exercised his faith in that situation, if whatever faith Peter had and what he did with it was solely the responsibility of God, well then when Jesus said to him, oh you of little faith, he would have actually been criticizing himself for not giving Peter the faith that he needed to successfully walk on the water. Right? God gave Peter his faith, that's true. But Peter was still responsible to exercise that faith relative to the circumstances he was facing. God was fully sovereign over that situation, and yet Peter was fully free to believe or doubt God's sovereignty in that same situation. Look, if you're going to be able to navigate the rough waters of this life, there will be times when you're going to need a sovereign God to act against all odds or it's game over. And yet at the same time, you still have to choose to exercise the faith that he's given you, sometimes well before that need is met, before you know the outcome of that situation, before you can even see him working. And the only way you'll ever do that is by accepting the fact that ultimately God is in control. He's sovereign and you are not. And so look, if you're, if you're facing an impossible situation in your life, I know some of you are, you're going to have to exercise that kind of faith. The faith that believes that he can and will act on your behalf against all odds. And listen, what happens when you do exercise that kind of faith, not only does God respond, but it, it changes you forever. Your faith becomes greater, stronger, more powerful as you witness his sovereign hand working in your life in ways that only he can. James 5.16, right after saying the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You see, the faith is a powerful gift from God, and sometimes you have to exercise that gift against all odds before you know the outcome. And of course, that's the hard part, which is why it's called faith. And so today, as we continue in our story, working our way through the book of Esther, we're going to see just what God can do in our lives when we're faced with an impossible situation against all odds as we find our protagonists, Esther and Mordecai, in their own impossible situation. Listen, uh, if you were here last week, you know their backs are against the wall with nothing short of life and death 
hanging in the balance. If you were here, then you'll remember that Haman, the king's right-hand man, his best friend, is bent on completely annihilating the Jews because of Mordecai's refusal to bow before Haman at the king's gate. And so Haman convinces the king to send out an edict for all the Jews to be killed, wiped out. Mordecai and Esther agree that Esther must go before the king to plead their case on behalf of the Jews, including on behalf of themselves, even though she hadn't been summoned by the king, which under Persian law was to court death. It was a law. You can't come before the king unless he requested you to come or you could be killed, executed. So they agree before she goes in to fast for three days on behalf of Esther and what she's about to do, not knowing the outcome except that the odds are clearly stacked against them. In fact, at the close of that chapter, Esther makes the remarkable and remarkably brave statement, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Let's pick the story up there as we, uh, the three days now have passed, and Esther is approaching the king. Chapter five, where we left off, we'll begin with the first four verses. So Esther five, verses one through four. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. So at the end of chapter four, we're, we're left to hold our collective breath as Esther makes a commitment to Mordecai to go before the king in three days, knowing that she's probably going to die uh, by doing so. And so as chapter five opens, the three days have passed and Esther with her best royal clothing on makes her way to the inner court of the palace in what must have been a terrifying moment, she waits there before the king to see if he will receive her or, according to law, order her execution. Keeping in mind, she hasn't seen him for 30 days, which is a likely signal that his affection for her had begun to wane. The king's under a lot of pressure at this point. And when it says that she stood in the inner court in verse 1, the word stood in the Hebrew is the word amad, which in this context means to remain or abide. In other words, Esther was there a while, waiting, abiding, waiting for the king to see her and respond. I mean, can you imagine? It must have been agonizing, standing in silence, awaiting her fate for who knows how long, but then something unexpected happens. The king sees Esther and he holds out his golden scepter toward her, which was a signal that he would receive her, which meant Esther was now permitted to not only live, but to come before the king and speak without fear. And then he asks her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. We see this throughout scripture, and I always wonder, why don't they just say, yeah, I'll take half the kingdom. I mean, that's what I would have done. Turns out this offer to Esther was not to be taken literally, and Esther understood that for a king or ruler to offer up half his kingdom to someone else was a Actually, it was a commonly used idiom. It was an expression among ancient royalty to let others know that the king was amicable. He's feeling particularly generous toward the person before him, but he wasn't actually offering to give them half of his kingdom. It's uh, the same offer Herod makes to the daughter of Herodias centuries later in Mark chapter 6 after she danced before him. And so Esther knows that she's not only going to live now, at least for the time being, 
but that she has a green light to begin to reestablish her relationship with the king, which will be crucial for her to do if she's ever going to be able to get him to consider the request that she really is there to ask of him, which is to turn against Haman. Haman's his best friend, his right-hand man, his drinking buddy, right? She's gonna ask him to turn against Haman and revoke the king's own edict to destroy the Jews, both of which at this moment would have been impossible for Esther to expect the king to even consider. Uh, they haven't seen each other for 30 days, and yet he's with Haman daily, his best pal all the time. They, they throw a few back after work every day together and talk about plans, including killing all of the Jewish people, right? So to ask the king to turn against his closest confidant would have been suicide for Esther at this point, and to ask the king to revoke a royal edict even worse. Right? Royal decrees were generally considered irrevocable in the Persian Empire. You can't just change your mind. So Esther, with brilliant strategy, decides to take it slow and attempt to reestablish some rapport with the king uh, before asking him to do for her what she really wants him to do, what would be unthinkable against all odds. And so Esther responds to the king's question with a request that not only shows great wisdom and patience on her part, but truly incredible faith. Esther says, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Esther doesn't say, if it please the king, let me go and prepare a feast for you and Haman. No, she says, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today, now, to a feast that I've already prepared for the king. Now, listen, for the past three days, right up to this moment, Esther didn't know if she was going to be permitted to even live long enough to have a conversation with the king, let alone to have a meal prepared for him. In fact, if you look at the, the Hebrew construction of that phrase, and if I perish, I perish, back in chapter four, we looked at that last week. In the original language, the and if part of her statement really means when. Esther was saying, when I perish, I perish. It is what it is. So she's clearly anticipating a negative response from the king, which would mean her certain death. And yet when the king asks her to make her request known, she says, will you come to the feast that I have already prepared for you? And Haman, which means that even though Esther knew or assumed her death was likely, she still took the time and expense and effort before she even came to the king to have a feast prepared and planned and presented for him. You understand, this, a royal feast wasn't something you threw together in an hour. What incredible faith for Esther to take such deliberate steps in preparing a banquet for the king, not knowing if she would even have the opportunity to invite him to it before dying at his own hands. You see, Esther exercised great faith against all odds, and what a great lesson it is for us when you find yourself in a difficult situation and all the odds are stacked against you, when you don't know the outcome but all the signs are definitely not pointing in your favor, do you give up? Do you give in? Do you walk away? Or do you keep on believing? Do you keep on hoping? Do you keep on working toward a favorable outcome no matter how bleak your situation seems to be? Because listen, when you're facing an impossible situation, the most effective thing you can do is to have faith in God to do what only he can do. So we pray, we fast, we ask our friends to pray and fast with us just as Esther and Mordecai did and then we keep moving forward. 
We keep making plans. We keep doing our part faithfully, and we leave the outcome to God, which again is often all that we can do, and often that's all that needs to be done. But if you don't even have a faith, uh, faith enough to try, listen, you're denying yourself the opportunity to experience God working sometimes miraculously in your life. Again, that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean you're negating his ability to accomplish his will because your faith or a lack of it cannot stop him from fulfilling his will. Back in chapter 4, verse 14, when Mordecai was responding to Esther's original reluctance to go before the king, Mordecai says to Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. In other words, Esther, if you refuse to be faithful in doing your part, God is still going to accomplish his will one way or the other. That won't change. You, however, may pay a heavy price for not doing your part in faith. So I'm just telling you, if you want your faith to be strong, to lead you into all that God has planned for your life, then sometimes you have to be willing to go places and do things that require you to actually use that faith. Go figure. Right? Because, listen, if the outcome is all but certain, if the situation is perfectly safe, if the results are entirely predictable, if there's never any risk, then what do you need faith for? No, your faith grows as you use it. But using it also means allowing yourself to be in situations and circumstances and places where you have no other choice but to exercise great faith because the odds are stacked against you. The outcome is unclear. It may not seem entirely safe and there's no way to predict the result. Sometimes building your faith means risking your reputation or your income or your popularity or your security or even your own neck in the face of tremendous difficulties where all that you can do after you've tried everything else is to have faith and trust that God will show up and do what only he can do by his sovereign will and supernatural hand. I'm not talking about being foolish, by the way, or irresponsible. I'm talking about being fiercely faithful to do what God has called you to do, even in the face of great difficulty and uncertainty. Because that's how your faith grows. When you use it because you have no other choice short of giving up and walking away. It's exactly what Esther's doing here in our story. She's exercising great faith against all odds. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 8. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I've found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, then the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. In other words, hey guys, this was fun. Let's do this again tomorrow. Let's just enjoy each other's company a little while longer before I tell you what it is that I really want. Okay, Esther is strategically brilliant, and she's unbelievably calm under pressure, which I have to attribute to the fact that not only is she obviously a smart person, but listen, she and Mordecai and all of the Jews in Susa have just spent three days in prayer and fasting for her. Remember what James said? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Esther not only had a solid upbringing by Mordecai and a great head on her shoulders apparently working for her, but she had the power of prayer working for her as well. And boy, was it ever working as the king, after asking her twice now what she wants from him, he agrees to wait another day to hear Esther's request. Let's keep reading verses 9 through 14. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. By the way, fifty cubits high is seventy-five feet in the air. The gallows were built towering upward, not only as a symbol of the height of Haman's own hatred and pride, but also to send an unmistakable message to all the people in the city that Haman was not to be messed with, humiliated by anyone, especially not by a Jew, the ancient enemy of Haman's own people, the Amalekites. And gallows in ancient Persia uh, were not for hanging victims by a rope, as you imagine them today. The gallows were simply platforms used to display the victim who was impaled on a pole with one sharp end that the victim was lifted over and then pulled down by his legs onto the pole slowly until it traveled all the way through the victim's body and out of their neck. It was a slow and excruciating and humiliating death. And then the body would be displayed on the gallows for everyone to take in and consider the crimes of the condemned. Okay, so at this moment, Mordecai's immediate future is not looking good. And he already knew that, right? Remember, this is after the decree of death was issued for all of the Jews because of not bowing to Haman earlier. This is after Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This is after he mourned for his people at the king's gate. Wouldn't you think after all that, the next time he saw Haman walk by that Mordecai would have showed a little contrition, some honor, some fear, something? But he didn't. Now, Mordecai stood firm against all odds. There, listen, there was a resolve in Mordecai, just as there was in Haman. Total gridlock for both men. But there was also a big difference between what motivated each of them to do what they were doing. Okay, Haman was motivated by a fear of rejection. Mordecai was motivated by a fear of God. Haman yearned for others to honor him. Mordecai yearned for others to honor God. Haman represented the worst kind of pride and hatred toward people. Mordecai represented righteousness and love for God's people. Both of these men were firmly resolved, but for very different reasons. And Mordecai, knowing that he and the girl that he had raised and all of his people were most likely going to die for, for what he did, for his own actions, for refusing to bow to Haman, 
right? Knowing they're all going to die, he continued to stand firm against all odds of being saved, even in the face of the man who had bartered to the uh, indiscriminate slaughter of the entire Jewish race. I mean, this is truly astounding if you think about it, because it's one thing to take a stand for something. People do that all the time. It's something altogether different when continuing to take that stand means that you and everyone who's with you are going to die. There are not many people who would stick around for that part. I mean, let's just be honest. We, uh, we see protests on TV all the time, right? But as soon as the cops show up and the tear gas is dispersed or the water cannons are turned on, what happens? Everyone scatters, right? It's easy to take a stand. It's easy to protest, to make a statement when you have nothing to lose, but when the stakes are high, when it means potentially losing your own life and everyone and everything that you care about, that's not so easy and it's also not so common. To see someone remain in those circumstances and stand firm, I'm not sure anyone would have actually faulted Mordecai if when Haman walked by the last time, he'd fallen on his knees before Haman and begged for mercy for him and his people. That's probably what most of us would have done, right? But Mordecai stood firm against all odds of being saved because he knew that he was standing for something bigger than his own life and even the lives of those around him. So when we talk about exercising our faith against all odds, it's not just what we do before any of the consequences for those actions are felt. It's what we do in the face of whatever it is or whomever it is that's threatening those consequences against us. Right? When, when Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water, and Jesus replied to him, come. Peter got out of the boat. Well, that's great. That's more than probably most of us would have done. Peter showed great faith against all odds. But listen, as he was then faced with the reality of the storm away from the protection of the boat, when he was actually in a position to lose his life as the wind and waves roared all around him, he began to fear, and his faith was diminished. And then, of course, he started to sink, okay? We need to have great faith against all odds. But then when we actually get out of the boat and walk into the reality of that storm, when the possibility of all that we stand to lose becomes up close and personal, do we give in to fear and doubt and run back to the boat? Or worse, do we abandon our faith and sink in the midst of the storm? Or do we stand firm? I'll just tell you, I think this is the choice that the church in America is just beginning to face today. Look, it's not hard to find professing believers who say they have great faith in and are willing to stand for Christ and his gospel. But as soon as the heat gets turned up, and the consequences for taking that stand begin to be felt, right? when people start walking out of our churches because we refuse to compromise our convictions concerning Biblical morality, for one example, when the tide of popular opinion turns against the orthodox doctrines of the Bible that have been held up by the church for hundreds of years, when our metal is tested in the media and in our educational system and in the halls of government and even within our own walls, will we stand firm against all odds? Are we going to run back to the boat or abandon our faith? It's, it's not as far-fetched as you may think. There is a Self-described movement within the Western church called progressive Christianity. Those who reject not only biblical orthodoxy, but also reject their fellow believers who still cling to the absolute truths of Scripture. 
And so instead of Christ followers, we're labeled as bigots and haters and ignorant simpletons for believing that God's word, like God himself, is unchanging. The Apostle Paul said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. By the way, when Paul says that it's breathed out by God, he uses the Greek word theopneustos. It doesn't occur anywhere else in any other Greek text, including the Bible or otherwise, before he writes this letter to Timothy. Paul is putting tremendous emphasis on the fact that God's word is uniquely a part of him, a part of God, in a way that no other writing can be, and therefore it carries with it divine authority to convict and convert and to train and equip and lead one to righteousness in a way that nothing else can. Which also means that no matter how strongly we may feel to the contrary, listen, no matter how much the collective conscience of our culture changes on issues of doctrine and morality, we are neither qualified nor authorized by God to make changes to his word whenever it suits us. God's word never changes because God never changes. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Matthew 24, 35. So look, when we're verbally or otherwise assaulted for taking God uh, and his word at his word as it is written, do we stand firm in our faith and doctrine? Or do we get back in the boat with the crowd where it feels safe? And actually, this applies to all areas of life. When we're faced with opposition from friends or coworkers, when we receive a bad report from a doctor, when our marriages begin to unravel, when the consequences of taking a stand of faith against all odds begin to batter against us relentlessly, do we give up? Do we give in? Do we abandon our faith that God is sovereign and able to overcome the odds and instead bow to fear and doubt? Or do we stand firm in the very face of opposition? Because I'm telling you, your marriage needs you to stand firm and not give up, we've, we've made it far too easy to give up on a marriage. Your friends, they need you to stand firm and not compromise your faith or your convictions, even if they say they don't agree with what you're doing or saying. They need you to stand firm. Listen, the unbelieving world all around us needs to see a church that is unashamed and unafraid and unrelenting in its stand for the gospel and in its love for God and for each other, even when our circumstances seem to be conspiring against us. We need great faith against all odds, and we also need to stand firm when that faith is tested. Now, we're going to move into chapter 6. It's a very short chapter, and it reveals the last part of this story for today. We'll start with the first five verses. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So the night between these two feasts that Esther's thrown, the king can't sleep. And since there's no TV or internet, he calls for the book of Chronicles. 
Right? This is the official record of the Persian kings that recounted every official transaction of the royal court, which we have actually descriptions of from the 4th century BC historian Herodotus, who specifically describes a list of the king's benefactors within that record. So it, it served a purpose beyond just keeping an historical record. It was the book that the Persian kings used to know who they needed to reward for being faithful to the throne. This guy's the king over, I mean, the Persian Empire was most of the known world at the time, so this is how they keep up with all that. But look, it also wasn't casual reading either. These were official governmental records. So except for a few highlights, it would have been about as exciting as reading a copy of the IRS tax code, right? Which actually may have been the point as far as the king was concerned, right? Because he couldn't sleep. And so maybe the voice of one of his attendants droning on through the court records would lull him back to sleep, except that on this particular sleepless night, the attendant just so happened to stumble across one of those highlighted moments in the book of Chronicles, which recounted the story of Mordecai from five years earlier, saving the king from an assassination attempt. And instead of lulling the king back to sleep, he's now wide awake trying to figure out a way to honor this man who saved his life five years earlier and yet somehow never received any reward for this heroic act. And so just as the king begins to ponder his options concerning Mordecai, Haman shows up at the royal court in the early morning hours to get permission to brutally execute the same man that the king wants to now honor. And so the plot thickens. Let's see what happens. Verse 6 to the end of the chapter. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to, the one, uh, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes of the house, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. This just couldn't get any better who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. What a turn of events. We know that the Jewish people were and still are at this point in the story under imminent threat. Right, based on a royal decree of complete annihilation by Haman, right, even here. But, but even before that happens, Mordecai is set to be brutally executed as a precursor to the slaughter of the rest of the Jews. So Haman's wife and advisors are all in agreement. The gallows are built. It's the morning before the feast. 
All that's left to be done is for Haman to secure the king's permission, which by all accounts should be quite simple, because if Haman is already able to get the king to agree to kill all the Jews, which he he was, surely one more ahead of schedule won't be a problem. And so despite Esther's great faith against all odds, despite Mordecai's determination to stand firm against all odds, you understand in this moment Mordecai was still going to be killed. So let's not lose sight of the fact that even though Esther did her part and even though Mordecai did his part, even though they were faithful and stood firm against all odds, none of those efforts by themselves would save Mordecai. He was still going to die the morning of the feast, except there was one last piece to the puzzle, and it's a big one. That is a sovereign, supernatural, all-powerful, all-knowing, completely in control God who is over and above everyone and everything. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Okay, Esther has gone before the king unsummoned under the possibility of death for doing so. Mordecai refused to bow to Haman over and over and over again. Esther prepared a feast for the king before she even knew if she'd have a chance to invite him to it and they both fasted and prayed for three days and yet in spite of all of their faithfulness and planning and moving forward, Mordecai is still set to die that morning until God came through against all odds. Listen, the king just happens to have a sleepless night, which just happens to be the night before Mordecai is to be executed. The king had dozens of different diversions to choose from to fill his sleepless night, right? Music, court performers, dancing, hundreds of concubines, I mean, any number of ways to occupy his time, but he just happens to command the book of Chronicles to be brought and read to him in the middle of the night. And the one commanded to read to him could have brought any one book from the volumes of the Chronicles, but he just happens to bring the book from the year that Mordecai acted on the king's behalf. And of course, he could have chosen to open that one book to any number of pages from that year, but he just happens to open the book to the page describing Mordecai's intervention, saving the king's life. And all of it inspires the king to do something great for Mordecai as Haman just happens to show up at the royal palace. Now, the one problem with that entire description I just gave of these events, is the fact that with the sovereign God, nothing just happens. Nothing is random with God. Nothing happens by chance with God. Nothing is happenstance with God. No, he's always sovereign, always in control, always deliberate and intentional about every single thing that he does. So I'm just telling you, don't cross your fingers. Don't wish me luck. Don't count your lucky stars. Don't hang your hopes on wishful thinking or the farmer's almanac or fortune cookies or anything else. Because when the odds are stacked against you, be faithful, stand firm, and then Leave the outcome up to the only person who can actually overcome those odds. He's the one who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought. Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth? The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Listen, when life seems like it's falling apart and we're facing difficulties against all odds, yeah, We have a part to play. We must be faithful and we must stand firm. But listen, at the end of the day, God is in control and he alone determines 
the outcome. And man, listen, if this has captured your attention, just wait till next week. You better be here because this part of the story that we just talked about today is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all that God is about to do for his people, which is foreshadowed of all people in the statement made by Haman's wife. If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, buddy, you will not overcome him, but surely you'll fall before him. Clearly, God is in control. Okay? Some of you are facing situations in your life today that seem like Haman building the gallows for your ruin. Situations that seem like a crushing storm and it's rocking your entire world. And everywhere you turn, all you can see is a no-win situation. The odds are stacked against you. The wind is over here. The waves are over there. The bolts of lightning when I look up and black seas beneath me. And maybe you're still trying to decide whether or not to even get out of the boat. Maybe you're questioning whether or not you have the faith to even face the storm, but I'm telling you, listen, faith is rarely made strong on calm waters. That's a fact, Jack. Faith is rarely made strong on calm waters. It is in the storms of life where your faith is tested, and that's where your faith becomes strong. So listen to me. If Jesus is calling you out of the boat, get out of the boat. Face the storm. Don't bow to fear and doubt when the waves batter you and the wind pushes against you. You stand firm. Don't give up and don't give in because at the end of what seems like an eternally long walk through the most difficult days of your life, Jesus is there waiting for you and he calms the wind and he stills the waves and he commands the seas because he alone is sovereign. He alone is in control, which means you don't have to be. The burden of the outcome is not yours to carry. It's his. Your part is simply to be faithful and stand firm and then let God be God against all odds. Let's pray.